I want to spend a couple Sundays looking at the way Jesus Christ interacted with people, regular old people. Sometimes it was his disciples, sometimes it was people that were sick, sometimes it was Pharisees, sometimes it was people uh, making sincere inquiries, and sometimes there's people not doing nothing more than trying to catch Jesus in his words. And he responded just right all the time. But he had an advantage to us. He could actually look into a person's heart and see what was going on where I don't have that ability. Um, sometimes I can guess with a biological child because I've known them for 15, 20, 30 years, depending on how old the child is, and I can guess, but when I'm talking to someone maybe at a, a store or maybe uh, even a member of this church, I don't have that kind of insight. So what I want to do is I want to be more like Christ. I want to be better at it when I talk to people. But before I get into that, I want to spend a week kind of laying a groundwork that I really believe that if you can get your arms around this, it'll change the way you look at your scripture. scripture. And uh, again, I challenge you to go back and read scripture and see if these things are so. But this could be incredibly important the way you read the Bible and you interpret Jesus' words. And I'd like to start off with a, uh, an example. And I'm going to use way in the back, there's my grandson Malachi, and he's about a year old. And I'm going to use him as an illustration. Now, when he gets about six or seven, he's going to hate when Grandpa does that. But right now, he doesn't know what's going on, so I'm going to use him. All right? And I'm going to use an illustration using him. And, and, and again, please follow the principles. I'm going to do some rounding here on, on, on different cognitive abilities he's going to have. And I'll probably be off by a few months. But, but don't get technical there because every child is different. And as a parent, you're going to have to do that. Okay? Well, with that being said... <clears throat> This past year, <clears throat> we enjoyed a fireplace during a cold snap, fires in our fireplace. And when little Malachi was over, what we did is, is we realized he does not have the cognitive abilities to understand the danger of a fire. All he can do is look and see something bright, flashing, and dancing in there, and he wants to touch. Okay? And, and, and we cannot explain to him the severity of the consequences or the, the permanent of some of the burns and the scars, right? So <clears throat> what we do at that age is normally we set up a barrier, maybe a child gate or maybe replace the coffee table, and we just keep him from that, okay? But then some time goes by, and maybe he's 18 months now, and he's gained some mobility. And all of a sudden, that child gate or that coffee table, he can climb right over the top of it. Okay? He still does not have the cognitive abilities to understand that that fire could be very harmful to him. And it could be very painful, and it could have permanence. So at that point, particular point in time, when, when, when he's going close to it, let's say Grandpa runs over there and scoops him up. You do that two or three times, and you know what? He thinks it's fun. He's turned it into a game. So he's going to run over there, and I see if I can beat Grandpa there. And he gets, you know what? And Grandpa's scooping him up and holding him. That's kind of fun. I like that. Okay? So that's another level. But then he gets to, let's say, two years old. And again, these don't hold these hard and fast. I'm just using rounding things. Don't use these dates to, to train your children, okay? This is a principle. At two years old, we think, okay, this is enough. He's more mobile, he's quicker, 
I might not be looking. I might not be able to catch him. So all of a sudden, we implement corporal punishment. He gets a pop either on the rear end or maybe a pop on the hand. Okay? And what I want to do as a grandpa, I want to replace this controlled pain of a slap on the hand with the uncontrolled pain of a fire on flesh. Okay? And at two years old, he gets cognitive of that, and he realizes, I touch corporal punishment, something bad's going to happen. You got that? That's, that's pretty much okay. But then we move forward, and now little Malachi's three years old, and he actually has the understanding that fire hurts. And I see that it's dancing, and it's pretty, but if I touch, that's an ouch. And I don't want an ouch. So natural consequences is what's driving him. Got it? And then finally we go forward even a couple more years, and now little Malachi's five years old, and he doesn't go near the fire just because he likes Grandpa, and he doesn't want to disappoint Grandpa. Do you understand the difference there? Y'all, that's us. That's us. We get to a point where when we are really, really young in the faith, we look at a commandment and we say, that is a constraint I don't like being constrained. And you sit on that little child gate and you're going, I want at that fire. I don't like this constraint. But then some time goes by and you realize, well, if I go to the fire, I'm going to get popped on the hand or the backside. I don't like getting popped on the hand or the backside, so I'm not going to go near the fire. And then you go to the three-year-old position and the three-year-old realize the natural consequences of this particular action is not very good, so I'm not going to go near the fire because I don't want to get hurt. And then finally, the five-year-old does it just out of love and respect. Got it? When Jesus is speaking to his disciples, early on, he's like, in effect, talking to one-year-olds. And then he's talking to them a little bit later. And in effect, he's talking to two-year-olds and then three-year-olds. And then hopefully he's pushing them to try to get them to be five-year-olds. Y'all, it's all about motive of why you do what you do. And don't you know, as a parent, whether the Malachi is one or two or three or five, I love him unconditionally. Amen? And my interest is in him for the deep relationship, but my also interest is, is for his health and welfare. And I implement certain rules for his health and welfare. But don't you know the richest relationship we have is at five when he's doing it just to say, thank you, I love you, Grandpa? Well, that's the way it is with God. And what happens is if you don't understand what Jesus Christ is doing with his disciples, you're not going to understand his interaction with the disciples. What he's trying to do is he's trying to... He's already loved these men unconditionally. And it doesn't matter if Malachi is pushing on the fence or he's getting popped on the backside or he real, and he's just walking away because he doesn't want to get burned. I love him anyway. But the whole time, I'm trying to move him along to the place at the five-year-old level where he's doing things because that's where the relationship is richest. Okay? So let me back up and take one more run at it, then we'll go to Scripture, and I want to try to show what I'm, I'm sharing. <clears throat> As you know, I was a high school teacher for many years. 
And let, let, let's, let's kind of take it, there's, in high school, there's ninth graders, 10th graders, 11th graders, and 12th graders. So you could use this as college, too. In college, there's freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors. Okay, let's, let's use the college analogy. When a child, <clears throat> a student comes in as a freshman, teachers, for the most part, are pretty easy on them. Okay? They, they give them some mans, they got a syllabus, they got to read the things, they, they got to do, and, and they're patient with them. But what happens is when they become sophomores, they start getting a little more firm. Amen? And by the time they're seniors, you're really bearing down on them. And why are you bearing down on them? Because you know it's about time that they're going to be released. Right? They got to be ready. And when I look at Scripture, let's take the book of John for just a second. The book of John is 21 chapters long. Got it? At the end of chapter 11, Jesus Christ is talking about going to the Passover to die. In other words, 11 of the last chapters is talking about the last week of Jesus' life. Early on in chapter 11, Jesus Christ is weeping after he raises Lazarus from the dead. The reason why he's weeping, y'all, it's April and you're about ready to graduate in May. Do you understand? Chap, chap, chapter 12 and 13 is the graduation banquet, bank, banquet. Chapter 14, 15, and 16 is the commencement speech. So I read, and normally I read chapter 10 and I chapter 11, and I think, wow, that's the middle of the Bible, that's the middle of their ministry. No, that's April and they're about ready to get ready to be released. And you know what? He's bearing down on them. And the reason why he's bearing down on them is he's not going to be with them anymore. You got it? So it's true with my biological children. When we read Jesus interacting with people, I, I got five biological children. And they go through different phases at different times. And, and, and I got several of them in the room, so I'm not going to bury any of them. I'm going to try not to. But there's times when I can look at them and I go, you know what? They're acting like a one-year-old right now. And I'm talking about the one-year in my metaphor, right? This is a constraint. I don't like your constraints, Grandpa. Or not, not Grandpa anymore. Dad. And then sometimes, okay, I realize if I'm going to do this, that's what, Dad doesn't like that, so I'm not going to do it. Okay? Because Dad said so. And besides that, he'll pull back on some of his... Um, his, his um, his gifts, okay? And then you move forward and you realize, well, I realize that Dad said it, but I've also done it a couple times and it never worked out that well, so I'm not going to do it because it doesn't work out that well. And then hopefully we get to a point with my own biological children, they'll say, man, I'm going to do it. Dad's just done so, so much for me. I'm not here to brag on myself. I wish I knew this less than 30 years ago. It sure made me a better dad, Okay? but maybe I can be a better grandpa. So when we do this, we, we're looking at our children. Jesus could do that. So he's looking at people that come up to him. And he's, where, where is this person in their spiritual walk? Are they just pitching a fit because there's constraints by God in their life? Or are they doing it because they want to get, or they don't want to get punished? Or they do, are they, do, are they are do, obeying because they realize natural consequences are this end? That's still pretty immature, isn't it? 
And unfortunately, the disciples were acting a lot like that in John 8, 9, and 10. And chapter 11's coming, and it's almost graduation. And he's pushing them harder and harder. Okay? Is, is, is that kind of, so we're going to look at several examples today, and we're going to look at examples of, of Jesus interacting with people, and I'm simply going to ask the questions, who's he talking with? A one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, or a five-year-old? given my spiritual example. Amen? Okay, so let's, let's dive into the first one. And, and basically, this is what I'm doing here. It's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Ecclesiastes 12.13, this is Solomon writing, and he says, Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's the Old Testament. That's the two-year-old. Right? But we go to the New Testament, and we're under a new system. It doesn't say fear God. He's going to spank you. And he still spanks, spiritually spanking. Or he's provided a spiritual principle, and the consequences are still there. Fear God and keep his commandments. Versus 1 John 5, 3, love God and keep his commandments. We don't obey God to get we don't obey God to avoid a punishment. We obey God to say thank you for sending your son to die on the cross. And that's where Jesus Christ is pushing his disciples. And you know what? They just don't get it. And I'm afraid I didn't get it for a long time too. Okay? So, with that being said... Let's go forward, and I'm going to look at my first passage. I'm going to skip these two fellows right here. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you want to read along in your Bibles or you want to read it here, this is good. But I'm going to read about a, uh, an account. And this is called the account of the rich young ruler. It's interesting because you'll find him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one place calls him rich. One people calls him uh, ruler. One place calls him uh, young. Okay, So that's why we call him the rich young ruler, even though we have to do this. Okay, I'm going to read the whole account, and then I want to double back, and I want to ask, what's this rich young ruler asking like, and what's Jesus actually telling him? Okay? <clears throat> and when he was gone, this is Jesus Christ, uh, forth in the way, there came one running, and kneeled down to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may et inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest, me thou, I'm sorry, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered him, and said unto Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And right there I want to go, yeah, right. But okay, he thinks he did it. Yeah. Then Jesus beholding, loved him. And said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered them again and saith unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches 
to enter into the kingdom of God. I want to ask you some questions. First of all, I want to make no, state, make no mistake about this young man. This is a pretty impressive young man. The first thing is, is we find him running to Jesus. Then we see him kneeling before Jesus. We see him saluting Jesus as good master. And we see him committed to obeying scripture. My God, guys, that's pretty good spiritual fruit. Nevertheless, it says Jesus loved him. And he's asking the question, what may I do to inherit eternal life? His concern about is going to heaven. Yes. So Jesus says, okay, the thing that's keeping you out of heaven is selling all your assets and giving them to the poor. Do you think that's really the commandment needed to get to heaven? Do you think Jesus is even talking about heaven? I don't think he is. I think heaven and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. I think they're tremendously different things. What's this young guy do? He really believes he's keeping the law. So what Jesus does in his way, he's looking at this young guy and he's thinking, okay, is he a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, or a five-year-old? Amen? Okay, it, I don't think he's a one-year-old. I don't think he's pitching a fit. How dare you constrain me? Amen? I don't think he's a two-year-old and that he's just trying to avoid corporal punishment, but I think we're getting pretty close because he still thinks he can earn it. Amen? Just, just tell me that one more commandment I have to do to earn my way into heaven. And Jesus says, oh, it's okay, give away all your assets. Then I'm glory-bound. What Jesus is doing is he's looking at the heart of this young guy and he realizes that, you know, he's a self-made man. He's got money and he can dig himself just about any problem. The problem is, is he has not got the self-reliance on, on the Lord. And that great big bank account that he has has still given him false confidence. And what Jesus is doing is says, put down your bank book. And lean on Jesus. That's what he's trying to He's trying to get him from the three-year-old level to the five-year-old level. To say, Lord, you've done this for me. I simply want to say thank you. There's no work system I can do to get myself into glory. Okay? You know, if you think about it, Jesus really added to the law. Jesus, Moses never said, give away all your assets, did he? He didn't say that at all. He never asked us to donate everything. What Jesus was doing, he's trying to teach him that you can't earn your way into heaven. It's reliance on me. And that's what he was trying to break this young man of. Do you think, now notice what it says. It says, Jesus loved him. It didn't say, if you give, donate all your goods, then Jesus will love you. Or, if you donate all your goods, I'll continue to love you. He already loved him. What was he doing? He was moving him for that intimate relation and trying to get him to that rich level like the five-year-old versus the one-year-old, the two-year-old, and the three-year-old. Okay. You found, okay, if you, some of you are nodding, some of you are getting it. We've got one down, three to go. 
We'll see if I can make my point. But, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to set up a grid as we go forward and we look at all these interactions that we're going to look at of Jesus Christ and people, and we're going to realize what he's doing is he's trying to mature us. When, you, when you're looking at the mode, he's trying to get us to heaven. No. He's trying to graduate us in maturity from the security you already have with the Lord into a place that's rich while you're here on earth. That's what we're talking about. Okay. See if it's not so. Okay. All right, let's go to the next one I have. I want to go to John 8. John 8. If you have your Bibles and would turn with me to John 8. I love this story for a lot of different reasons. <clears throat> here's, here's, here's Jesus' genius popping out again. Okay. Let me kind of share it. This is when um, the scribes and the Pharisees have, have watched Jesus. He's been in the synagogues. He's been preaching. He's been gathering a following. The Jewish leaders are getting upset. And they said, we got to get rid of this guy. And they said, I know. We'll get this woman caught in adultery and we'll bring him unto him. And if, and if he says stoner, what we'll do is we'll go to the Romans and, and they will arrest him. And if he doesn't stoner, we'll bring him to the Jews and they'll say he's denied Moses and we got him anyway. So what they're doing is they're simply trying to catch Jesus. Okay? So Jesus went in unto Mount Olives. I'm in John 8, reading at verse 1, now verse 2. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now the scribes and Pharisees weren't happy with this. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery when they had set her in the midst. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And again, I always say, if they were really interested in justice, where's the guy? Right? You don't do the act by yourself. Where's the guy? They had no interest in justice. They were just trying to catch Jesus. They didn't care about this girl. They just cared about themselves. What are they? One-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-olds, five-year-olds? Probably below a one-year-old, amen? Okay. They don't care about anybody else, just themselves. They say unto Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Verse 5, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, and though he heard them not. You know what? He ignored them. How many times would I have been better off just keeping my big mouth shut, huh? But he just quietly stoops down. He just pretends he didn't hear him, and he starts writing in the dirt. I have no idea what he wrote in the dirt. But he starts writing. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that was without sin among you, let him first <coughs> cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. Now, now, now I want you to really pay attention when he speaks to the woman. We're going to forget the Pharisees now. Let's just focus on the woman. 
When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thou thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, he said, Go and sin no more. Her sins are forgiven. He didn't say, Go and sin no more to get your sins forgiven. She's already released. He didn't say, Go and sin no more to stay forgiven. They've already been released. Why did he say, go and sin no more? Well, let's go through our grid again. Did he say, go and sin no more because I don't want to see you standing up here in a field in front of a bunch of men standing here with rocks in their hand? I don't think that's why. Did you think he said, go and sin no more because this lifestyle will kill you? Maybe, but I don't think that's what it was. Did he say, go and sin no more because the Warmth and satisfaction you're trying to get in the arms of men can only be gotten through God, through obedience and a close relationship with him? I think we're getting warmer. Look what he said. And I always stress this when I read this passage. Do you realize it took both sayings to show love? If all you said is, I forgive you, and didn't say, go and sin no more, that's no love. And if you never forgave and you just said, go and sin no more, that's not love. It took both sayings to demonstrate love. Man, I wish I knew this stuff 30 years ago when I was parenting. Amen? So, so Jesus could look at a situation and see where they were at. Was it, am I talking to a four, one-year-old and I'm trying to get him to a two-year-old level? Am I talking to a two-year-old to get him to a three-year-old? Am I talking to a three-year-old trying to get him to the five-year-old level? And then we see Jesus like in John 1 and 2, and he's working with babes. But when we get him to chapter 8, 9, and 10, all of a sudden he's turning up the heat on them because graduation's coming, and that's in May, and this is April. It's time to go, okay? So we just can't go to the Gospels and take a soundbite out of Scripture and say, that's what you need to do. Who was Jesus talking to? What were they at in their life? Do you understand? Okay. We like to do that too much. Okay, let's let's go. Two down, two to go. Okay, if you're keeping track and you're making notes, you're trying to figure out how much. Let's go to a Pharisee that challenged Jesus. This actually was a scribe. I'm in Mark 12 right now, Mark 12. And I I want you to notice something here. Watch, let's look at this. Jesus is going to talk to a scribe. Now, Jesus has just been run through the grill again. The Pharisees and the Herodians challenged him at the beginning of chapter 12. And then the Sadducees took a run at him about verse, I don't know, about verse, I don't know, 15 or 11, 15, 16, somewhere in there. The Sadducees took a run at him. And, and they fell flat on their place. And here's this lawyer, this scribe, and he's watching him. And he's watching him, Jesus interact with these guys. And he's going, wow, that's pretty impressive. He's getting out of everything. So the scribe scribe says, I'm going to take a run at him. Okay, So his intentions aren't that admirable either or honorable. But here we go. And one of the scribes came came and heard them reasoning together and perceived that he had answered them well and asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, when I read this, 
I kind of laugh because here's this scribe judging Jesus. The Son of God, the Word made flesh, and he's going to say, I want to see how well you know your Bible. Don't you know I'm the Word made flesh? And, he's just, and Jesus lets him judge him. Why is he doing that? Because he's trying to get him to the next level. Not to heaven, to the next level. Got it? Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O, Lord, o, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God is a one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe says, I'm going to give you an A for that essay answer. Right? Like the scribe's the teacher and Jesus is the student. But Jesus takes it. Why? Because this scribe is still on the law system. He's, he's still a fear God and keep his commandments. Okay. But notice what happens. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And then this scribe cannot help but show off how much he knows. And he expounds on Jesus' answer, but it's actually a pretty good answer. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and with all the, to, to love his neighbors himself is more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this scribe is starting to get it. It's not all about not getting punished and it's not all about I'm getting. He's saying, do it out of love. And you know what Jesus says? He says, you're almost ready to graduate. You're getting pretty close to being a five-year-old. That's what he's saying. And when Jesus saw that the answer discreetly, that means with some sense, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after the durst asked him any questions. He says, you know what? You're getting pretty close to that relationship where you're doing things out of love and respect as opposed to get or to not get. And all of a sudden we realize, wow, is that what Jesus is doing when he's talking to people? And the answer is, most of the time, yeah. Okay. One more. Let's go to Matthew 14. This is one of my favorite accounts in Scripture. I just try to be there. <clears throat> okay. Now, I'm, I'm strange. I admit it. I'm just guilty. This account, the disciples... Okay. Jesus has been preaching and he says we got another preaching appointment I want you to get in the ship go across the sea go to the next preaching appointment I'm going to stay back here I need to pray sometimes so he goes up in the mountain and pray and all the disciples get in the ship and this whole account is focusing on Peter, the apostle Peter the apostle Peter is a professional fisherman he's got his sea legs underneath him Okay, so as the storm is hitting him, now this is this is my conjecture. I try to be there. Okay, I'm going to try to do this as discreetly as I can. But there's Peter, and he's gone through this terrible storm, 
And as a professional, he's probably looking at the ship. I said, probably. This is also, he's, how much water is this taking on? And is it holding together? And how the masts are doing? Are the ropes strong? Are there stress there? What's going on? How ship, how seaworthy is this ship? How is this vessel going? Do we need to row faster? Do we need to bucket faster? What we have, that's what I'm thinking. Peter's thinking, okay? But I'm Matthew. I'm the accountant. I'm the land lover, right? I'm not looking at the seaworthiness of the ship. I'm on the rail trying to keep my lunch down. Okay? And I read this, and Jesus comes walking up, and he says, be of good cheer. Peter hears him, and we're going to focus on that conversation. But let's think about Matthew for a second. When you're trying to keep down the next wave, and someone says, be of good cheer, isn't that the last thing you want to hear? Right? In effect, Peter is going to have the same reaction to Jesus in just a second. The problem is with us, you and I, we get so focused on our earthly intense discomfort, we forget all about Jesus, we forget all about heaven, we forget all about our perspective, and we just want to be fixed now. Amen? Well, that's what's going to happen to Peter. Notice the language with Peter. Okay. I think I got your attention with Matthew. But Peter's going to do it. That was all, Matthew was all speculation. This is the real deal. Because I think, I look at this and I go, Peter, you're amazing. I wouldn't have said, can I come to you, Jesus? I wouldn't have stepped out of that boat. Peter did it. I wouldn't even got that because I'm Matthew. I'm still hugging the rail. Right? I'm, not, I'm, letting, I'm not letting go. Okay. So let's read this account. This is in Matthew 14. I'm going to start reading at verse 22. <clears throat> and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain to pr- apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the seas. They've been sloshing around that ocean for a long time. The fourth watch is the last three hours of the night. So it says in the evening, they were there for a good part of the evening. They were there for three watches of the night. And now somewhere in the middle of the fourth watch, Jesus comes walking up. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, Is this, is it a spirit? And they cried out for fear. Verse 27. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. But the ship is still getting beat up. The water's still coming on board. The masts are still creaking. And my stomach still feels upset. And you want me to be a good cheer? And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And, Jesus, and he said, come. 
And Peter climbed out of the ship and he walked on water. That's one point I want. If Jesus tells you to do something, you can do it. Peter didn't sink. Peter says, can I come to you? He says, yeah, come. And he came. When God tells you to do something, you can do it. Amen? That, that, there's a whole sermon in that all by itself. But there's a whole sermon in the next saying too. And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out and said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. Isn't that cool? So Jesus told Peter to do something. Peter did it. Then he got scared and he says, I need help. And you know what Jesus did? There goes the hand. He's ready to help. When Jesus tells you to do something and you need help, he's going to help you. That's a good sermon too, right? Now when you're doing your own agenda and you say, help me, Jesus, that hand might not come out there. Right? But what happened with Peter was, is he was like Matthew. In that moment, Matthew's sitting there and his stomach is so upset, he doesn't want to hear, be a good cheer from Jesus. Well, the, 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 the waves are slapping him in the knees and his clothes are getting wet and the mist is spraying him in the face. And you know what he did? He took his eyes off of Jesus and he forgot about Jesus. He was so concerned about his immediate intense discomfort and danger that he forgot about Jesus, his words, his promises, his command. Because way back in the beginning, he says, we are going to go across the lake and preach. And don't you know, you were going to do that. And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. But notice what he said in verse 31. After he grabbed him and caught him, he says, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? He did not say you needed faith to walk on water. He did not say you needed faith for me to stretch out my arm. He did not say you needed faith to get back in the ship. Jesus' love was unconditional. Just like mine was for the one-year-old that either obeys me or disobeys me, that gets popped on the behind or does it out of love. That love is unconditional. But what he tells him here is he questions his faith. Why did he question his faith after he was back in the ship? Why? Because he's trying to get him from the one-year-old to the two-year-old to the three-year-old to the five-year-old. This is not, this saving here is not going to heaven. This saving is from filling up his lungs with water. Amen? And he says, save me. And the hand come out. And he caught him. And he's holding him. And he says, you've got such little faith, Peter. When I tell you to do something, you can count on me getting you done. And you can count on my help while you're doing that. As we read Peter's case, Peter's one of those hard cases he puts a lot of stock in himself and his own abilities. And unfortunately for him, 
It was well past graduation day before he finally figures it out. I look at Peter and I look at his life and I think, wow. Everybody, everybody thinks those three times he denied him. You know what? Those three times, he, he, it was a drop in the bucket. How many times did Jesus say, will you pray for me? And then he fell asleep. He said, I'll never deny you. And he was gone. They were having, in Luke 22, they were having the, the first communion service and he got in an argument about who the best preacher was. So Peter was right in the middle. Amen? You know how many things he had to regret when he was sitting there those three days and three nights waiting for Jesus to, to arise from the dead? There was a lot of things he had to overcome. And then at the very end, at the very end, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Peter's out there fishing again. This is in John 21. And, and, and Peter and John are on the boat and they're fishing. <clears throat> and when they're fishing, they see Jesus on the seashore. And he says, toss your net on the other side. And John says, that's Jesus. Peter jumps in the water and swims to him. They have the fish bake. Jesus chews him out. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, you know, all that kind of stuff. And at the very end, Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, if you love me, follow me. And you know what Peter says? He still hadn't arrived. He says, but what about John? And you know what Jesus said? John ain't none of your business. Follow me. That's what he told them. And you know what happened? Peter got it. Because just in a few short days, we're going to see him deliver an incredible message at Pentecost. And you know what? He's not afraid no more. And he and John are going forward, and he's just, he's just dynamite. He went from the place where it was all on him. He was obeying not to get punished and to get blessed. And he went to the place where he was finally to the place where he was obeying, simply to say, thank you, Jesus. My strength is not enough to get me through this ordeal. You did it for me, and I'm obeying not to earn my way into heaven, but to say thank you for your sacrifice, which got me to heaven. So, when we come together and we start looking at the interactions between Jesus and so many people, and you're going to run into all kinds of people, especially you, Josiah. You tell all the stories that happen, even with teachers challenging you for your faith. You're going to run into folks that are just, they just can't... We obey to get, or we obey not to get punished. No, we obey to say thank you for what you did. That motive is different. It's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you know what? I'm glad the Old Testament is dead. It's been purged. It's been washed away. I'm thankful for it. Now, all I have to do is walk like it and try to remember it. And then also when I do my interactions, I can hopefully interact it and try to follow in Jesus Christ's steps.